let's, uh, before we really get into the text, let's take a moment and talk about mums. We, uh, we had these two mallard ducks that lived in our pond down below, and they had a little nest, and there's eggs, and our dog, Sam, went ripping down there, saw that there was ducks on the pond, and did a cannonball, and I'll tell you what, a brouhaha erupted, and it was Sam versus mallard duck, and it went on forever. Sam would not give up. Sam's my dog, by the way, not a human. And uh, just, it went on and on and on. And it was crazy that this mom was going nuts and would never for a moment leave these little eggs. It was crazy. But I'll tell you, the second Sam jumped, and while he was still in midair, the male duck bolted and was never seen again. He was instantly gone. And we're just like, hey, get back here, you deadbeat dad. What are you doing? And he's just long gone to the next pond. He's down the road, and it's the mom fighting the dog. And I thought, so typical. Melissa even commented on it, you see. (laughs) What a moment. The faithfulness of a mother is a profound thing. So much so that in the early church during the Dark Ages, after this thing called the the, uh, Edict of Milan, where Constantine essentially made it law to be a Christian, the church went in steep, fast decline. People were, they, they wouldn't go to church for anything And the church was being very hard on people. This was the Catholic Church at the time. And people just stopped wanting to have any interest in God the Father. You see, their fathers at home were seen as harsh and distant and angry, while their mothers were gentle and faithful. So the idea of God as Father was a challenge to many people. So the Catholic Church at that time introduced this concept where people can come and there's an intermediary. It would be the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin Mary is a really really interesting concept in the early church. Um, You got that picture there, Sean? In all of the, the, the drawings and all the photos, her arms are open wide. There's no judgment. It's nurturing. She's often got little children. And so this concept that the church came up with was, come, we know God seems harsh, but the Virgin Mary, you know, come on, she is. And they had this concept that she's perpetually a virgin. So with each additional child, it was, it was also from the Holy Spirit, this idea that she was pure. This idea that she is not going to do anything sketchy. And so the church would come and people would be like, okay, we can deal with that version, the, vir- the, the Virgin Mary. You know, the images in our brain are powerful, and they actually change our behavior, how we view different people, companies, God. I asked um, Emily to draw me. We were out at Montana's, <laughs> my daughter Emily. And, um, and she drew this picture, and it was the funniest version of me I've ever seen. You know when you draw somebody with muscles, they have one big bump for their bicep? You know what I'm talking about? My arms had 20 of those. It was just like muscle on muscle. Like, I was this enormous human. And I was like, that's how you view me? That's so awesome. You know why it is? It's because she always asks for an underduck on the swings, and I can underduck like no one's business. So to her, I am the strongest man. So from her perspective, that's me. If you were to get, like, Jacob to draw me, it would look really different. My arms would look like cheese cutters, It'd be like, I can see the hands, but are they... Oh, yeah, there's arms there. That's... Okay, I can see that. You see, I want you to imagine now, we all have a concept of each other, but our concept of other is dependent on ourself. Do you guys understand that? 
I want you to understand just for a moment God. If you were told, I want you, and imagine you're a good painter and you could actually draw what's in your head or paint what's in your head. I want you to paint God. Paint him. Just close your eyes. That's God. Paint him. Now I want you to imagine Jesus. Paint Jesus. Now imagine the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Sometimes we have this idea that the Holy Spirit is a force and we accidentally call the Holy Spirit it, don't we? The, the Holy Spirit is a he and, and, and a part of the, the, the Godhead, the Trinity. We have these concepts that are really strong. I want to show you a movie clip. And these are different images of those three. And these have created a lot of discussion. All right, Sean, go ahead and roll it. Alan Phillips. <laughs> my, my, my. Look at you. Do I know you? Not very well, but we can work on that. I've been so looking forward to this. To finally see you face to face. Can I take your coat? And that gun. We wouldn't want anyone to get hurt, now would we? I understand. It's confusing. We all do. You will do this on your terms and time. How about some introductions? I'm Alusia. I have a lot of names, but that's one of my favorites. Or if you want, you can call me what Nan does. You know Nan? Oh, yes. Very well. You saying that you're... I am. The I am? I am that I am. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Already quoting scripture. And you bet my son. Ready to see you, man. Your son? Of course. And, um, son, are you? Sarah who? <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, it means a breath of wind. So, which one of you is? I am. And you have no idea how much I love you. It's okay, baby. Let it go. We all collect things we value, don't we? I collect tears. It's good to meet you guys. And 
That's interesting on many levels. Um, why don't we just actually take a moment and talk about our thoughts on those different images of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. Just give your general thoughts for a little group around you. We'll just take 45 seconds, and let's just discuss, okay? All right, and go. All right, all right. My guess is that there was some uh, varied opinion within your groups. And, and straight up, there's a few images in that that I absolutely love. This, one of my favorite passages in Scripture talks about how God stores our tears in bottles, that, that, that every one of them is remembered, that he, his love for us is so just nurturing, that that's who he is. I love that concept. Um, I like so much of that, those images. Those images challenge our really rigid perceptions of God, don't they? But God does call himself Father, and he calls himself himself. But I think that the issue is not with God, but rather our idea of masculine love and affection. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to imagine a God who calls himself Father that, that, that would use those terms. Clearly, in Scripture, God calls himself Father and uses the male pronoun. But we have this funny habit of putting everything in a box, and and very simple boxes. We simplify things, and this is how we sort of deal with a lot of data in our lives. So, for example, if you watch a superhero movie and you're with a kid, what's the question they're always going to ask? What's that guy's name? Okay. Is he good or bad? (laughs) Okay. What's that guy's name? Good or bad? Because once we know if they're good or bad, then we can put them into a simpler category. And we do that with pretty much everything in our lives. C.S. Lewis says this. says, there is a human desire for tidiness and control. And this is our enemy. This is our enemy. Because we like to go into a room and we like to have control in it. We like to know what people are going to be wearing, how we're sitting, the temperature, how long it's going to be. Oh, how long it's going to be. On the L.A. trip on the bus, that's the question I get asked nonstop. How much longer? How much longer? I just have, like, you know, classic answers. I just make stuff up all the time, so there's different numbers all throughout the bus. Drives them crazy. No more tidiness and control. We have this need, and we bring this into our faith, this desire to know God. Here's what happens, and I think we can all remember the moment we, f- we knew for sure that God exists. And all of a sudden, this worldview that everything is natural 
it just shatters before our eyes, and all of a sudden, now there is the supernatural. I've seen it happen before my eyes. Kids get saved, and then they're like, so wait a second. Heaven? I'm like, yeah. Angels? Yes. On and on and on and on. As soon as you accept the virgin birth, every other miracle pales in comparison. As soon as you accept the resurrection, your simple, natural world shatters. On our Portland trip, um, there was this guy who got healed, and he was like bent over, really severely disabled, and by the last day was completely healed and was like carrying people's groceries. And I was with the girl, and I can't remember who it was right now. If it was you, please tell me. And she was just completely beside herself, and she looked at me, and she said, It is real! It's real! That just like dawned on her in that moment. It's like, this isn't a fairy tale, so that means eternity. Do you guys see how this goes? But here's what happens, is that once it's shattered, the natural is gone, there's an issue, is that we want tidiness and control. So here's what happens. Now that we're a Christian, it's like, okay, now I need a new reality. I need a new box. And they quickly determine what it is. Okay, I go to church. Now that I'm in church, I pray. How do I pray? Oh, that's how you pray. Dear Jesus, amen. Okay, now I know how to pray. Okay, I don't swear anymore. And I say, oh my gosh. Okay, this is what a Christian is. I sin, but it's private. I understand what's going on. I pray and I read my Bible. This is a Christian. Okay, I'm getting this, and I'm nice to people. Oh, and I'm also pro-life. Okay, this is my new box, and I'm starting to, like, build it. But the problem is, is because we all have a desire for tidiness and control, we quickly make this a very limiting little experience. This is who we become. And we domesticate God. And in the book, The Holy Spirit by Billy Graham, he put it in such an interesting way. This is what we do. We want to understand God. So this is what we do. It's like we go to the ocean and we fill a jar and we bring it home and we're like, this is the ocean. I captured it in this cup. Look at it. This is the ocean, everybody. Salty. This is salty. This is the ocean. I got it from the ocean. Do you guys, here's what we do to God. And we domesticate him. The problem is, is that there's no power here. There's no life. There's no smell of the salty air. There's no crashing of the waves. There's no majesty. There's nothing. It's just domesticated garbage. And then we say to the world, come, look at our God. Whoa, look at him. He's so powerful and awesome. And people come in and they're like, this is so boring. We would way rather be anywhere else but if we could present to them the real, living, powerful, untamed God, nothing else would be better. The beach pales in comparison. Big white, nothing. It's just like, get to that God. Get to that God. I want to get to that God. But we domesticate him. And we've all kind of come here with a fixed idea of who God is. And as we age, it gets more rigid. Because experience fortifies it. It's what happens. My, one of my best friend's dad got brain cancer. And I remember we were sitting in Sunday school. It was me and him and my other friend. And we asked our Sunday school teacher, we said, so Jesse's dad 
is probably going to die. And, and he said, can we pray for that? And our Sunday school teacher said this. He said, we can pray for comfort, but God doesn't heal anymore. That doesn't happen. That went out with the book of Acts. And we're all young kids. And I believed him. And we all believed him. And none of us prayed for his dad. And his dad died. I don't know if he would have anyways, but this became our understanding of God. Is that, okay, God doesn't do that anymore. God is this. God is about comfort. One time we went to a church when I was little in Vancouver, and uh, it was the most happy church I've ever been in, and it's so pumped, and this lady turns around, and she's like, you like it here, don't you? She goes, that's the Holy Ghost. And I was like, oh, man, and I actually started to cry because ghosts are terrifying. I don't want there to be a ghost in church. That's spooky and, and mysterious, and you can't control a ghost. You see, we all have this rigid set of beliefs and expectations, and, and we all do this based on our own personal experience. We have this idea of God the picture of God that each one of us had in our heads when we pictured him is all different. Isn't that strange to think about? When we're worshiping together and we're worshiping Jesus, the same Holy Spirit is within us, and so we have the spirit of unity. And we feel like we sense that we're brothers and sisters, but we're all picturing somebody different. That is something. And we come into this place with this really rigid understanding of God. And we don't change our minds. I just heard this study on CBC Radio, and it was talking about the political situation in the U.S., and it's just talking about how, really, at the end of the day, people will not change their views for many things. They went um, to Trump supporters, and they said, what would it take for you to not support him? And they gave out hypotheticals. Let's say he had an affair. So, like, well... You know, it was probably for whatever. They justified it away. Okay, killed somebody. Well, you know, it was probably... And there's always some sort of spin. They found that over 90% of people, there would be nothing that would change their minds. It's also the same on the other side. Democrats, they said, what would it take for you to support him? Let's imagine he achieved world peace. No, you know, probably did it selfishly. Let's imagine he saved a bus full of babies. Oh, bus full of babies. And they... Nobody would change their minds because this is what happens in our lives and obviously not just with politics but with life is we get a perspective and then we only take in information that supports our present view. Information that opposes our view, we reject outright. It's what we do. And so we approach our faith like this as well. We do this with God and we have them in a jar. And here's what happens is that when something opposes our view of God, we have the same reaction to fear, and it's fight or flight. That's what happens to us. I was speaking about what happened years ago in our church when this guy named Dorian was, was possessed, and he had demons within him, and we prayed for him, and it was the most radical night. And, and later that week, she, that, she left our church because of this. She said that this is not true. This spiritual reality doesn't exist and that I was lying about it. It opposed her previous understanding of her faith and, and who God was. After a wedding, or at a wedding one time, I told about a lady named Heidi who prayed for a girl with no eyes 
And the eyes miraculously grew in that place. And, and some, somebody came up to me upset that there was no sources cited on that, that this couldn't have happened. One year after we went up north um, for a Watson Lake trip, we stopped at one church, and some of our interns preached there. And we got an email back from that church questioning our church's theology because we talked about hearing God. And, and there's so many people who have, a, have opposition to that. It hasn't fit into their present understanding of who God is, that he speaks to his people. You know, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus absolutely shattered people's little jars. What he did, these encounters that we're going to witness, are the most famous encounters maybe in history. There's more paintings done of these. Sometimes when we're driving in the bus, so we're just at the ark or whatever, kids will come up and they'll just be, hey, can you tell us stories about the miraculous? (laughs) Kids will listen to stories of just what Jesus has done for hours, just hours and hours. They'll just sit there and take it in because we're created for the supernature, right? That's who we are. And kids will just listen. Come on, I want more and more and more. And Jesus does the most crazy things, and then this is how he sums it up. This is in Matthew 9. If you have your Bibles, grab them out. Matthew 9. He says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. We don't really do that anymore, but back then if clothes had a rip in them, they would just clean them, or clean them, fix them. If socks had a hole, they would darn them. You guys know that term? I have a friend who, who had his um, grandma do his laundry, and when it was returned, they were like the actual jeans with all the rips in them, the cool, and she actually sewed them all back up. It's like, oh, grandma, those are $300 jeans. <laughs> this is what they used to do, is they used to fix things, and so when you wash something, it shrinks because it's older. If you put an unwashed patch on there, and once it washes, it'll shrink And destroy the garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making their tear worse. He's talking about putting new revelation on an old garment. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What is he talking about? You got to understand back then the water was dangerous to drink. And so they often drank wine. That's what they did. And wine was very cheap. Fermentation process killed bacteria. So this is what they did. And to make it, they used wine skins because wine ferments and grows. And so they need something sealed that can expand. And so they made wine skins. And here's a picture of one. Sean was shocked at how crude they looked. That looks gross. That's a wine skin. And what they would do is, you know, uh, new leather, it's very flexible. And it would grow and ferment and it would expand. And, and they could use these wineskins a few times. But once they got old, they got rigid and they would break. They can no longer stretch. And so at that point, they would use these for water. They would go to a clean source and old wineskins would just be used for water. And this is a really interesting thing. Because wine was a symbol for his blessing, for the miraculous. It symbolized his Holy Spirit. See, we're all created for the blessing of God, for the miraculous. 
God wants to do new things and fill us with his spirit. But here is the reality, is that so often we come to him or we come into his presence and we are still the same person that we were. We haven't grown at all. We're an old wineskin. It's been years since there's been growth. And we come to him with these rigid expectations of who he is and what he's going to do. We come to church and we're like, he's not going to do this. He's not going to do that. And we've kind of accepted spiritual apathy and the lack of spiritual growth. Have you ever noticed that? We wouldn't accept that in our children. Like, let's imagine for a moment that Brandon Trombley there. See, Brandon, let's imagine we're in the middle of church and he starts crying really loud. Like, not just, <laughs> but like baby crying. Ah! And at that moment, his girlfriend, Shannon, pulls out a bottle and starts to feed him. Everybody would be like, this is Brandon. Get with it. And then he starts tearing at his diaper. We'd be like, buddy, grow up. This is weird. Because we expect growth in each other. But sometimes spiritually, we can go for a long time. And, and things haven't really been changing. And we could be just dealing with the same sin in the same ruts, feeling far from God for year upon year upon year. And the reality is, is that the reason why we're not encountering the Holy Spirit or the blessing of God is because we're just not growing. We're spiritually stagnant. And we can't figure it out. We come to church and we're like, I just don't, I worship, but it's just dead. I pray and there's nothing. What's wrong with me? You see, Jesus went on a mission to shatter our tiny little misconceptions about him. And it all starts with a leper. And we talked about this last week. This encounter was first for a reason. It shares his whole heart. And in every one of these encounters, there's such a, a beautiful piece of art. And so this is Jesus with a leper. And, and Jesus encounters this man. And remember, I want you to imagine the leper comes in and because because his, his voice, his larynx is attacked, his voice is hoarse, and he is rotting, and they say that they smell and taste like death. Lipper, you can just taste it in the air. It's so pungent. And Jesus comes down from the mountain, and all of a sudden everyone's screaming and shouting, and they have to keep 150 feet away, so they're running. And the rabbis are picking up rocks and throwing it at this leper, and the leper's just going for Jesus, and his bell is rattling. He's got to wear a bell, and finally he gets to the feet of Jesus, and this is where he shatters their misconception. They called Jesus rabbi. The other rabbis were throwing rocks. What does Jesus do? He bends down, and he touches him for the first time in years. See, they did not this did not fit their image of the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would come and make the Jewish people a set-apart people. Superior. So this, this gross leper, he is out of here. Jesus, in the very first encounters, takes their little understanding, their little box, and says, you don't even know me. No one's on the outside. And then he heals him. And you remember, I really believe his fingers just popped back, just like... And he's healed, and they're like, who is Jesus? Yeah, he's got power to heal, but he's willing to touch an unclean man. And then the second encounter is immediately afterwards, and this one is amazing. This is Jesus, and he, he walks away from the leopard, and a centurion approaches. And this is a Roman soldier. This is who the enemy is. 
this is like the enemy of the Jewish people. He's like beating them and oppressing them. And he says, Jesus, my servant, my slave is sick. Can you heal him? And Jesus says, all right, I'm coming. And he says, I don't deserve you under my roof. And Jesus does something that blows their mind. He heals him from a distance. You have to understand what this meant to them. This meant that Jesus was omnipresent. He healed from a long distance. Jesus was, also, was present with the centurion, but he was also present with the slave. And back then, when slaves were sick, you know what they did? They didn't deal with the effort of trying because it cost a lot of money to see doctors. They would actually put them in Gihanna. This was a place where people went to die. It was a garbage dump. They would put their servants, their slaves, in Gihanna, and they would die and rot. That's what they would do. Jesus heals from a distance somebody that's his enemy's slave that should have rotted. Oh, do you guys see how this shattered their minds? They're like, okay, Jesus, you're everywhere. You love your enemies. These are all concepts that they would not have understood. And here's the next one. And at face value, you're like, okay, Jesus has control over the weather. Look at that painting. The use of light is so beautiful. But they thought they were going to drown. And Jesus is in the front of the boat, and he's sound asleep. Because he knows his destiny. And when you know, when you know where the authority is, you can sleep. And they wake him up. And this is where it gets weird. He gets up, and Matthew says he rebuked the wind and the waves. He never said he stopped the wind and the waves. He rebuked it, and it instantly stopped. And the disciples who knew him forever said, what kind of a man is this? Because all of a sudden, he's way outside of their understanding. He's way outside of their box. They're like, who is this? You see what he did? In the Jewish story, their resurrection, that's our big story, theirs is the Passover where they cross through the Red Sea. And in Psalm 7, it says that God rebuked the sea and it opened up. Only God rebukes water. Only God. When Matthew said that Jesus rebuked the storm, he's saying, this is Yahweh. This is God himself. What kind of a man is this? This is Yahweh. It's like, oh my goodness. The disciples were like, we can't, we don't have a category for you. Their little tiny category, their little, their little jar, like, okay, the Jesus, this is God. All of a sudden, it is bursting and it is growing and they, they can't control it. And it continues. He shows up to Legion. And Legion is this demon-possessed guy. And I tried to find pictures, but most of them were nude. <laughs> Legion was completely naked, cutting himself. I don't really want to show that here. Um, and Legion is, is naked, and, and he comes to Jesus, and, and people start to, to gather and to hear what's going to happen. And Legion sees Jesus, and, and the demons in him say this. They say, we know you're the Son of God. Do not judge us and punish us before the appointed time. And the disciples are like, what? Jesus is going to punish you at the time of judgment. This blew their minds that Jesus was the righteous judge. They had never thought about this before. 
And after he cast the demons into the pigs, the people were so terrified because this is not who they expected that they begged him to leave. They're like, Jesus, get out of here. Like, oh, who are you? We didn't even know. We didn't know that you had this power. And then he gets home and people follow him. And all of a sudden, as he's preaching in his home because he needs to go home and people aren't leaving him alone, all of a sudden through the roof, they lower in this paralyzed guy. Imagine the scene where they like yelling down, hey, Jesus, here he comes. And is the paralyzed guy like, oh, you're going to drop me. Don't drop me. And he's coming down, and there he is. And Jesus blows their mind again by saying, son. This was a man that they assumed was a sexual pervert because sin to do with the spine or issues with the spine meant sexual deviation to the Jewish mind. He said, son. He says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody was like, you can, who can forgive sins? You are dead, Jesus. You're, you can't say that. And then he healed him. He said, take up your mat and go. You see, the Jewish people believed that sin was the cause of the illness. And, and he could have just said, you know what, young man, your sins are forgiven. You want some water? Okay, see you later. Your, your friends will take you home now. And nobody would have known if his sins were forgiven because he wouldn't have been healed. But he said, your sins are forgiven, and then proved it by saying, now go, walk away. This is, so this is blowing their minds. Not only will he judge people, he can forgive sins. And then it ends this way. You see, Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. And he throws a party. Did you know this? Matthew left his tax stand, but he wanted all of his tax friends to become Christians. So he threw a party at his house and said, do you guys want to come meet Jesus? I know him. You want to come? You want to come? They all show up to Matthew's house. It's a party for the tax collectors to meet Jesus. And they're all just like, okay, tell us more. Like, tell us more. And all these tax collectors are just eating it up. And the Pharisees show up, and they're like, well, well, well. Because this was a special day. It was either a Monday or a Thursday because it was the day of fasting, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. That's crazy. It was designated for that purpose. It was only supposed to be once a year, which was the Day of Atonement. But they're like, we're super spiritual. Twice a week, we're fasting. They're having a party. The Pharisees show up and say, Jesus, don't you love the Lord? This is a good churchy opportunity, and you're wasting it. This was a man-made idea, and it wasn't God's plan. And he said to them, you know what? You're not going to put new wine in old wineskins. He's saying you're not going to encounter the Holy Spirit, the blessing of God, because your ways are rigid and you do not know the heart of God. Here's, I think, just a good general practice when we open the scriptures, and this is what it is. To say, my thoughts are not God's thoughts. Listen to Isaiah 55. We've heard this many times. This is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. You know, when we talk about matters of life, people always say, well, you know what I think? You know what I think? Sometimes don't you just want to say, I just kind of want to know what God thinks. Because your thoughts are not God's thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. They are way higher. They are way more all-knowing and powerful and full of compassion and love. And sometimes we, we, you guys know like so many Christian books these days start with the question, does this sound like God? Would God do this? Would I do this? In other words, I am more moral and, and loving than God. You know, the sun is 93 million miles away. That's just the beginning of the heavens. This was written 4,000 years ago. So their fastest thing that they ever have been on is a horse. So imagine that. Like, this is Isaiah speaking. How far has Isaiah been in his life? Like, 20 miles, maybe? 30 miles? Maybe he went 30 miles in his whole life. And now he's saying, God's ways are as high as 93 million miles. He can't even fathom. It's way too insurmountable. And so that is why... Our Bibles are so precious because they're his thoughts and they're that high. Do you realize that? Our Bible is the most precious commodity on earth. Listen to what Isaiah says just later in chapter 66. He says, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones that I look on with favor. Okay, you're wondering, how does God look upon me with favor? How do I want to live my life? Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. (laughs) That's who God looks upon in favor. When we open his word, we just tremble at its power and its authority in our lives. When you tremble, it means that you are in full submission to it. It's like, oh my goodness. But most of us don't read our Bibles at all. Most people only listen to preachers. And here's the problem with that, is that we mostly listen to preachers that have the exact same views that we have. And so this little rigid understanding of God, it stays that way and it only strengthens And that preacher's biases become our biases, and they grow and they grow and they grow. And we read books with people in the same stream, and we listen to music with people in the same stream. And all of a sudden, all of our spiritual content is secondhand. It's like Paul says, it's milk. It's been pre-digested, and we're not growing. We're infants. We're babies. And I'm like, how did this happen? How in the world... How in the world do I get new wineskin? How do I become that person? And it's really clear. It's we need to tremble at the word of God. When we get into the word, he brings us places we never would have gone otherwise. See, I really have God in a box. We all do. And when I come to church, I need to say, my view of you is incomplete reveal more of you today. It's just this constant, God, just show me more, show me more. And it's always testing it against the scriptures. It's never like, I want new revelation. We've all heard how those go sometimes. Paul says, as he's preaching, he says, test what I am saying against the scriptures. This is Paul. He's writing the Bible, and he's like, test what I'm saying. If you only come to pursuit and listen to me, your faith is going to look just like mine, and my faith is in a box too. So often I'm in full of old wineskins and missing out on the blessing of God. It can't be that way. We all have to be in the Word daily. 
our faith and our understanding is incomplete. This needs to be my approach. Last week was a really great week here at Pursuit. Isn't it weird how God could just be working in someone just like crazy, just like spiritual bombs, and other people could just be like completely out of it, checking the scores on their phone? Do you ever feel that way? Or do you ever feel like you're the one who you're just like watching something and you're like, holy, the, what's going on over there? And you're just like totally out in left field. Last week, um, I got a chance to pray with Eric, and, and it was one of the, the strangest things. As I was praying for him, uh, I just kept hearing this word from God, and it was that, that, that he made Eric to be courageous and to be this man that leads many of us. And then this phrase kept repeating in my head, his name is Caleb, it's not Eric. It's Caleb, it's not Eric. It's Caleb, it's not Eric. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to pray. And I keep hearing, it's Caleb, it's not Eric. So then I just said, what's your full name? <laughs> and he says, well, it's Eric Caleb, but actually my first name's Caleb, not Eric. And I'm like, What? <laughs> God revealed something so wonderful to him that day that he's made him to be a conqueror, made him to go and take the promised land and come back with the courage of the Almighty God, not with fear. And I got to be a part of that revelation, and I went home so encouraged. You see, I had such a rigid, false idea of prophecy for years. One time we were at a church, I was with Steve Johnson, and this guy came up and said, um, uh, you know, you need to stop having so much sex. <laughs> and Steve was just like, I don't even know if I've kissed a girl before. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he had this word for him that was negative, and it was not from the Father. A, a word that is prophetic is, is, is created, it's designed from the Father to strengthen and encourage and comfort, to reveal true identity, not to point out sin ever. And I had this really false idea of how God will speak to me through me to other people. It was this false, rigid narrative that wasn't right. It was my old wineskin. And, and God wanted to lead me on further, and it was only going to come through his word revealing that to me. See, this is how we get cessationalists, which are people that don't believe in the Spirit, like my Sunday school teacher, because so often the gifts of the Spirit have been abused, haven't they? I've been to so many places where kids are faking the gift of tongues because they've been told that the gift of tongues is a sign that you've been filled with the Spirit and that you're saved. So all these kids are just like faking it and doing... And so I had this rigid understanding in this box that I put the gifts of the Spirit in. And, and I needed God to renew my mind through the Word. Through the Word. Let me show you something absolutely wonderful. This is 1 John 3. It says, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you guys get what that is? Right now we have this understanding of Jesus that's very limited and immature and small. And one day we're going to see Jesus for who he is. And it's going to go from this, oh, I know who Jesus is. I've got him right here. To standing in front of the ocean and being like, oh, this is you. This is who you are. 
Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not because he's going to force them or say, now worship me, get on your knees. It's because everybody will have their false impressions shatter in a second. They're tiny boxes and everybody will fall to their knees. The atheist who only knows a God that is angry from his father. The kid who is abused and so will never go anywhere near a church. And on and on and on, he will show us for who he is. And we will be so in love and compelled to worship him. That's such a powerful thought. For we shall see him as he is. Oh, we're going to worship. And this is how I'm going to encourage you. God wants to bring new wine. That is more of the Holy Spirit. More of the miraculous just more of his presence into your life. And he's saying, who you have been, that old wineskin, he says, I want you to move on. I want you to get a greater understanding of who I am. I want you to tremble at my word. I want you to show up to church with an open mind saying, my understanding of you is immature and small. Reveal more of yourself to me. Just every time we gather And the Spirit will just move us to greater places. Isn't that wonderful? Instead of just growing more and more rigid in our understanding, if we could grow more and more soft in our faith as we age, God will do so much in us if that's our reality. I'm going to encourage you, you know, it's starting tomorrow to say, I am going to be a man of the Word. I am going to be a woman who is in her Bible every day. If you're not, you're not growing. It's just that simple. If you're just ingesting spiritual milk that's other people's teaching, you're not growing. You're not growing. If you're not in the Word, you're spiritually stinted. Let's start tomorrow. Let's all start tomorrow. What do you say?